Hello and welcome back to the RegTech Legends podcast. I'm your host, Tom Richardson, and delighted today to be joined by the CEO of GSS, Global Screening Services, Mr. Tom Scampion. Tom, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here, Tom. Tom, I was thinking for the benefit of our guests who've perhaps not had the opportunity to meet with you before, if, wondering if you could share your, the story of your journey into this industry we call RegTech. Sure, with pleasure. And of course, I'm loving the fact that this has got the word legends in it uh, <laughs> as, a, as a title. So um, I'm, sure, I'm sure it's about the stories rather than the individuals. But let me, um, let me talk about my background. So I, uh, I started in, in technology. So during my first probably 15 years of my career, I spent, spent that time in technology, looking at data, making sense of complicated data and helping create things like single customer views or indeed reference matching to to lists that you had to screen against for all sorts of purposes. So I did that for, for 15 years. Unbeknownst to me, that was kind of reg tech yeah. in a way, um, but it wasn't called that then. Uh, so I did that for 15 years, and then I, I was about to go to another tech firm, uh, another US-based tech firm, uh, and I, I kind of got waylaid, and I went over to Deloitte, uh, the consulting firm, and I spent the next 15 years or so at Deloitte. And at Deloitte, that's when I really probably think on balance, that's when I really focused on, on what you and I would call reg tech, but back then it was how do you use data and technology to make better sense of regulation and make sure you're compliant and efficient and so on. So I did that for 15 years and I was uh, the head of uh, financial crime compliance for, for Europe, Middle East and Africa and I also looked after the analytics practice as it pertained to the problem of risk and I did that um, globally. So I kind of wore these two hats and pretty much every client engagement would have been some expression of how those two capabilities come together. So that was me. And then um, uh, I, uh, uh, upon leaving uh, Deloitte, when I reached a particular milestone, an age milestone, um, uh, and I was very happy at Deloitte. It was a ph phenomenal firm, really enjoyed my time there. But Alex Partners came along and they said, oh, yes, we're kind of the same but different. Why don't you try and uh, form a career here? So that was 2019, I think, when I... Left Deloitte, I started Alex Partners in 2020, and almost as soon as I arrived, the, what is now GSS began. So uh, our journey of three years to, uh, from, from phone calls and ideas through to a live product, clients on the platform, phenomenal amount of support. Um, that's, that's the last three years, so here I am. Fantastic. Do you, um, I, I, and I want to get into that, but before we do, one of the things I'm always intrigued by is had you always imagined you would start your own company or is this something that's, you know, the ball's come out the back of the scrum and you picked it up? It's interesting. I, I always daydreamed about the idea of wouldn't it be fun if dot, dot, dot. And um, like many people, I never really had the idea of how that would work in practice. So it's one thing to have the idea, it's another thing to actually execute on that idea. And, um, you know, life is about taking opportunities, I think, and one of these opportunities presented itself. And, and therefore, because I was open to it, you know, receptive, yeah. then the opportunity was one I wanted to seize. I didn't actively go out and look for the opportunity. In fact, 
it was three banks who came to us and said, we're frustrated with how the industry does this at a bank level, we should do it at an industry level, can you help? And, and then sort of two and two came together and, and away we went. So for me, it was more, I was receptive and therefore open to opportunities and this one came along. I'd love to tell you that I had a master plan. No master plan. Yeah. Interesting. And and you you kind of touched on something that I was I was keen to to understand. Just in terms of maybe maybe we can pick up on what you talked about there. Those banks came to you while you were at, at Alex Partners. Was was that always the intention? Sure. Was, well, there's a, of course, there's a few things to unpick there. Let's let's sort of split it into the the genesis of GSS and why the industry is hungry for this. Yeah. Um, this to be a success and then the other side of it is uh, I'll talk about how we made it happen and, and the role of Alex partners and, and other people so let's start with the genesis of GSS so um, as you know everyone has a regulatory obligation to make sure they are not doing business with people who are sanctioned and there's different ways in which you exercise controls in order to meet that um, obligation one of those is that you screen customers on arrival, you screen your suppliers, you screen your um, staff and so on. Uh, but you also need to look at the transactions that um, go between parties. And by definition, a transaction has at least one counterparty. And, and the frustration in the industry was that, well, if we've got transactions that are being uh, screened or filtered as, as the more specific word for, for the activity of screening transactions, if you're filtering those, why are we doing it on both sides of a transaction? Why don't we do it once? And, and we do it once to high standards and we both benefit. And then you say, well, if you look at correspondent banking, you've got multiple banks in that chain and they're all doing the same thing. And actually, they're not trying to do it differently. We all want to make sure that any bad actor is identified in that chain. But why are we all doing it blindly of each other? Why don't we do it to standards that we've all agreed and therefore we can drive not just efficiency uh, but, but, but higher consistent standards so there aren't breaks in that chain in terms of quality. So the principle was are there certain areas of compliance or regulation where it makes sense to do things at an industry level to do it once and screening traffic absolutely that's one of them. I mean people have tried KYC uh, utilities much tougher because people have different views about what constitutes sufficient information to know your customer so therefore people can't agree standards but for you and I to determine whether Tom should match to Thomas yes it's not that controversial so actually well, you can agree standards much more straightforwardly and if you can agree standards well why don't you just do it once and allow yes. everyone to benefit from those standards so the genesis of GSS was that simple principle um, we don't compete between institutions, we all face the same regulations, we can agree consistent standards, let's do that and let's do it once uh, for the benefit of all. So that is a really compelling idea, I still think it is of course and, and uh, you know our banks are equally excited as incidentally Tom are the regulators. The regulators love the idea of consistent application of the designations that they make. So you, you've kind of got this wonderful sort of coming together of you know Banks waste a lot of money on it, they're frustrated about how much time it takes. Uh, we can say we can do it to better quality uh, and uh, for, for less cost. The regulators 
really want people to get this done consistently and actually spend a lot more time thinking about circumvention as it happens. So we can please the regulators, the banks, the reg folks in the banks, the financial folks in the banks, the ops folks. So, so it's quite a compelling story when you bundle it all together. So that's kind of the genesis of GSS. Um, where Alex Partners came in is at that point I was a managing director at Alex Partners and they said um, uh, that they were equally excited about this as an idea because it speaks to what Alex Partners looks to do, which is to, to, be, um, you know, to support innovation and to support areas where they could incubate something which could come to fruition. So for Alex Partners to say, um, look, we're happy to put some skin in the game and we're happy to sort of see this uh, get off the ground, um, you know, after appropriate diligence, you know, we got to an outcome where they said, yep, let's incubate it. And they incubated it through to September 22, when we were carved out as our standard, as a standalone business. Yeah. So it became a standalone business a little over a year ago. Uh, Alex Partners, of course, retains a significant holding within the business, but we also took on um, uh, public information, $45 million of funding then from different parties in order to um, see the business get to the stage we've got to now. Is there a sort of a chicken and an egg moment where to uh, progress this beyond a certain point you need a certain level of buy-in from a group of people who are unlikely to commit much time to it until there's a certain level of sophistication or... Um, yeah, I mean, look, there's a, there's a little bit of a, you know, the, the principle, if, if we build it, will they come? Mm. And so far, you know, so, so far, so good. Um, we have uh, 70 banks, so, you know, 70 relationships that we maintain with different banks at different stages. Um, what's been so positive, if the banks have given us their time to help develop these standards that they would accept yeah. and therefore everyone would accept. And, you know, banks don't compete on this. It's not, uh, mm -hmm. you know, having better sanctioned screening is not something that um, differentiates you because you have counterparties. Yeah. <laughs> and therefore the, 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 the friction will be a function of the weak, the weak link in the chain or inconsistency in screening. So there is a natural benefit for everybody if we can apply these standards consistently. And so people have given us a lot of their expertise. They've been very transparent. We've had over 1,500 one-to-one um, -one meetings with these banks in the last 18 months alone, literally defining everything from matching standards, uh, you know, the field you should match, how you should go about decisioning whether something is a true positive or a false positive, um, operational impact assessments, how you manage data, how you think about private lists, or the whole the whole gamut. So we've created all of these standards based on lots of bank interactions, which has been which has been great because our motto is um, is that we are built um, from the industry for the industry, and 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 this is the exemplification of it. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so just, just understanding a little bit more about that journey, how does one go from an idea to where we are now, where you've got, or in fact, maybe you can share the story of where you're at now <laughs> and, and, and what that journey looked like? Uh, well, it, everyone tells us we're moving very fast, but sometimes it felt like we were going very slow. But um, uh, 
we started with the phone calls from uh, various banks in 2020, so August 2020. And we did some sort of high level sort of blueprints of what was possible in, in the uh, UK autumn of that year. And then uh, as we moved into and passed through that gate positively, we went into 21 and we designed um, what became a, uh, a detailed uh, um, roadmap, if you like, for how we would move through different phases of design and build. Um, and the, the big moments for us were uh, pr knocking down and uh, uh, satisfactorily answering the three big questions uh, for something like this. One of them is, um, will banks come together to agree standards? So effectively, will, will banks lean in to want to do this? The second thing was, will the regulators support it? Um, uh, that's very important, of course, in, in, in any business and, of course, in a reg tech particularly. And then the third area was, can we uh, identify technology which will be able to be sufficiently performant given the ambitions that we have? So we spent a lot of time with the banks agreeing standards and um, the first three banks soon became 12 banks, became 20 banks, became, and now as I've mentioned, we've got 45 banks in our development boards and more than 70 banks in total engaged. So those numbers continue to increase. And there was a, a clear recognition from the banks that it is better to do this at an industry level. So if you can build it, we will use it. So that was a big moment for us. Um, and the agreement of the standards, I think, is a great example of that. The second thing was getting regulatory engagement. Uh, we went to OFAC uh, early, OFAC uh, part of the US Treasury, set the global standards, if you like, for um, uh, sanctions compliance. And of course, everyone does it. Um, within within um, countries, but OFAC set the drumbeat, if you like, for the for the world. Um, and uh, we had two or three pretty detailed workshops with those guys. Um, a, I was delighted they saw us, and B, I was really pleased about their engagement. And and their view was, if you can build this, then we we think it's the right thing for the industry. Uh, and now we've spoken to probably fifty different regulators globally. Uh, often with our banks, we go hand in hand with our banks to different regulators. Plus, um, we've now got a, 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 a letter from OFAC, which is, is what we call the OFAC guidance letter, which is them setting out why they think GSS uh, could be a good way to, to manage sanctions risk. And we were delighted to receive that from OFAC early this year. Right. So that's important for us. Yes. So then you've got bank engagement, regulatory um, engagement to the to the extent that uh, positive support obviously we're not asking for them to endorse GSS but we want them to feel that this is a, a sensible way to apply a control to manage sanctions risk and the third area is could we identify technology that would really perform so we are cloud-based um, uh, platform therefore we chose um, a combination of, of cloud native uh, elements uh, where we, we we license those components plus we've built three quarters of the platform we've built through um, our development uh, sites in Poland uh, and elsewhere. So we've, 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 we've now come together to say, look, we've, 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 we, we can deliver on the technology, we can perform in near real time. I think it's 
250 milliseconds uh, per transaction is what we absolutely um, uh, put in, into our contracts, but actually it's much faster than that. But more importantly, uh, it scales. It scales and it has all the benefits of, of, of uh, software as a service because uh, you know, upgrades are free and um, you can uh, you know, have very transparent pricing. It's all included because we've got this end-to-end -end pricing concept. So it's per transaction and, and therefore you've got that tick in the box of technology. So long way to answer your question. Your question was how do we move from effectively PowerPoint to live? Well, we go through those gates. We make sure the banks are comfortable, the regulators are comfortable, the technology will deliver. And then we do testing and testing and testing. And we spent a lot of time testing against industry benchmarks like Swift testing services. Uh, we test against our own standards to make sure we, we can deliver a more, more successfully than each of our banks who we've benchmarked. And then, and then finally, we go on site. And uh, earlier this year, in the UK spring of this year, we did our first on-site proofs of value. And uh, we were delighted. Not only did we find everything we wanted to find, we had far less friction, so far fewer false positives. And that has repeated itself every time we've been on site. So we're able to get to where we said we'd get to, which is higher standards, less friction, lower cost. Do you, um, I'm going to bet that the uh, those proofs of value worked very well. Um, so presumably the technology in the background worked very well. Uh, having spoken to a number of founders, I'm assuming the process of, of making that happen didn't go perfectly smoothly first time. How, how have you found the process of uh, building out the tech, uh, number one? And number two, I just wanted to pick up on something that you, you mentioned. Was it three quarters of the tech is uh, is GSS mm. built, developed, and then you've got a, the, the other element which is delivered via partners. Is that a, a fair? That's right, yeah. yes, that's right. So we've, on, on that point particularly, and I'll come back to the things that don't work quite so well, <laughs> um, we have, um, we've licensed um, a, a matching engine uh, which which uh, we now configure with the GSS standards, uh, cloud native, very performant. You know, kind of like a raw API, but 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 really great for us to sort of plug into that. Um, uh, and then uh, similarly with um, we use supervised machine learning to do some of our uh, identification of false positives, and that's worked very well. But again, it, it's driven by the rules that we create with our with our with our banks in our you know capability groups, which sit below the development board. So. Um, it's been a good partnership all round, a partnership with the banks, partnership with our par uh, technology partners. And then we package all that together to say, here's your end-to-end -end service and you give me a certain number of pennies or, or, or cents per transaction and um, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do whatever you need us to do. So on all fronts, that's kind of worked work well. Now, what doesn't work so well? My goodness, this is a journey, isn't it? So um, sometimes it's silly things like just pinning down um, uh, the requirements and not making assumptions. For example, uh, we work, uh, we're in the cloud and AWS is our, is our uh, cloud of choice and they're in multiple locations and uh, we will sometimes, or we have, we've assumed a certain location which actually turned out not to be the location that the bank was anticipating. So that's kind of frustrating when we do things like that. We do it once, we don't do it twice. Um, that was quite frustrating. I think sometimes um, our ability to estimate the amount of time some of the dev work will take, um, uh, it's not always moving to the right, but it often moves to the right. Yeah. 
because there's complexity which maybe towards the beginning particularly we didn't anticipate. So we spend a lot of time in the agile world of burn down charts and story points and how long things take to build. Um, I also, th so that, you know, that's been a process that we've got better at managing, but it's not always straightforward. And I think the, the last thing is that we're so we were so keen, especially in the early days, just to say yes. Yeah. Uh, and I think some of our control over dev work could have been better. So sometimes we built things because we thought it was a great idea, and it turned out that we'd do this big reveal of a new feature, we'd show it to people, and uh, guess what? They were kind of interested, but it, it wasn't something that, that was fundamental, but yeah. we'd just spent goodness knows how much time building it. Now, it's not throwaway work, but, um, but we probably could have been a little better at prioritizing what we did. Yeah. So those are some of the lessons I think that we've learned. Uh, but, um, but, you know, that, that's the beauty of moving from um, concept to reality. And uh, hey, I think we've all learned, learned a lot because of it. One of the interviews I saw you do, I think it might have been at Cybos, um, uh, and you, you quoted some figures. Uh, I don't know um, if, if you were sort of rounding them off or just giving a, a general gist, so uh, correct me if, um, if these are wrong, and I might just uh, misremember it. So uh, it's all, it's know, all We, we love talking wrong. numbers. We're in the data world, so yeah, 100 um, numbers. But you were talking about, I think it's between 5 and 20% of payments fail to go through first time. Mm. About a quarter of those payments take more than a day to then be rectified or, mm -hmm. or followed up on, um, but 99% of those subsequently ten, uh, turn out to be absolutely fine. And so I was just wondering, are, are you able yet to, to quantify the impact that you've had on that? So yeah, let let's um, let me give you the waterfall uh, again, and and well remembered by the way. Um, so so uh, I'll I'll maybe just add to it a little bit. If you market size, how many transactions are screened globally? Um, the, the, it's it's north of forty billion. Forty billion transactions every year are, are screened to identify potential regulatory concerns. That's a lot, right? 40 billion, yes. 40 billion. Um, and, and some of our friends in the, the large American banks are doing over a billion a piece, okay? So the top sort of three or four banks in America comprise about five billion of that 40. So that's significant volumes. Uh, you're right, the alert rate. So when, when is a, a, a transaction, um, could be a payment message, could be trade, could be market sort of. What, what percentage of that flow is stopped? Uh, well, people have different alert rates, and of course, it depends where you are geographically and on what lists you use and so on. The best are around 5%, just under. The worst are double digit. So it's not unreasonable to assume that 10% of that population globally is being stopped. So we've now got a population of 4 billion transactions a year which are being stopped. Uh, because there's a potential sanctions concern. Now, if uh, you or I were on a sanctions list, um, we would not use our names uh, or even a derivation of our names to uh, process a payment, to make a transaction, uh, for obvious reasons. So therefore, you end up with 
sanctions screening being a preventative control, so you need it to prevent activity, safe in the knowledge that pretty much everything that generates an alert, you're going to close. Um, because you don't suddenly start putting little special characters in your names or swapping letters or adding spaces and so on. I mean, back in the day, people did, but I think, you know, these are public, publicly um, available lists. You know, you know who's on the OFAC list. You know who the UN's desi designated, the, the UK, the EU, and so on. So you know. So if you know, um, then you're either going to be pretty dopey as a bad actor or, or you're going to not use your name. But you generate alerts. Oh, hang on, could this be the same Vladimir Putin who's in the Kremlin? You end up with that sort of scenario and people have to work it. They have to do something about it. So that's why you end up with almost everything that gets identified ends up being a, a false positive, with the exception of um, you know, BICs uh, or um, you know, some of the country identifiers, which have got a higher chance of actually becoming a, a likely match of concern. So you can work out the savings that you can present to the industry. If you stopped 5%, not 10% yes. globally, I can tell you what that would save the industry. If you um, uh, were able to uh, uh, speed up the way in which um, alerts were closed, and you can do that by uh, reapplying decisions, mm -hmm. because you say, well, actually, I know this isn't the bad actor because he's got account one, two, three, four, five, and therefore, you know, I'm pretty comfortable that that is someone different to the person that it looks like. If you can reapply decisions, uh, you can then even though it's alerted, you can close it quick, more quickly. And then the other thing you can do is you can say, well, is there information I can share? Requests for information are not retained, typically. It's like, oh, yeah. hang on, your customer, I've generated this alert. How do you know it's not the Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin? Oh, because of X, Y, and Z, and you know, we've got this document and that document. Now, just think about how you could make that better. So we want to do two things. We want to generate fewer alerts, and if we do generate the alerts, we want to close them more quickly. Um, and there's all sorts of extrapolations I can give you as to why that's a great thing to do. Uh, the nice thing is that every bank agrees it's a great thing to yes. do as well. Yeah. And are you in a position yet to uh, quantify the impact that GSS can have on those numbers? Not without sounding ridiculous, because the numbers are gargantuan. So we, we, we can absolutely give you um, percentage improvements institution by institutions. And we can say that of that 40 billion transactions, uh, we know that the average rate is going to be around just, just into the double digits. And then we can extrapolate what that will be if we can get down to our experience, which is we can get people to low single figure digits. Different organizations quantify or have cost models which show how much they spend uh, taking in different costs. Um, we don't share them publicly, Yeah. Uh, but bank by bank, we absolutely do share those numbers because it's a big business driver. Yeah, I understand. But it's material. I mean, there's a material saving. And it's not just about the cost. The, the, the thing friction. That the <laughs> exactly right. It's the friction. So if I'm at the, if I'm at the Financial Stability Board, if I'm at um, you know, SWIFT, if I'm at any of the you know, transnational organizations who are saying, this, this is what we're fed up with, uh, the word friction is pretty early on. Mm -hmm. So we're working with um, uh, the BIS, uh, we're working with SWIFT, as you know, uh, to do um, a lot of work around how we can remove friction. So therefore us, um, 
faster payments, yes. Safer payments, absolutely. Uh, safer, faster payments becomes our, our, our one of the things that we're able to deliver. Not just payments, of course, but just to make 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 it um, make it more straightforward because payments are such a high volume. If somebody said, "Is it about faster payments?" Yes, it is, but it's safer, faster payments, and we're a key element of that. Almost eighty percent of the friction associated with delay is because of sanctions checks. Yeah, and that's 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 exactly what we're eating into. Yeah. Do you, do you think sometimes on the industry side, so so the vendors, the RegTech vendors, do you think they um, do you think they pay attention to the wrong thing? We're you know we're talking about false positives, but actually that's less of a it's, it's the, the underlying driver is not the false positive. It's 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 friction in the system that they're worried about. Well, you know, false positives is a measure of friction. Yeah. So so I think that they are one and the same in many ways. Um, I for me the interesting thing. Uh, along these lines is that banks um, are sold products by vendors bank by bank and therefore if I'm an investor in a um, technology firm you're super excited about the fact that you can sell that product again and again and again and therefore you look at the 6,000 banks on the SWIFT network. Great, I could sell my product 6,000 times if, it, if it's a product sold to banks. And that gets people uh, excited. But of course you could argue uh, that's not the way in which we should be solving this problem at an industry level. We should be not selling it 6,000 times, we should be selling it once. And we should be saying to people, you can rely on that because it's already been done to standards, so don't worry about doing it again. So in many ways, um, we're the outlier in, if you're inverted commas, the vendor community because uh, we're saying to people, sell it fewer times. You don't have to keep buying this product. In fact, we make the point, Tom, that isn't it silly that we've grown up trying to create sanctions controls and every bank is trying to be an expert in list management, alert generation, alert disposition, how I do manual investigations, the whole chain. Why? Why is every bank trying to be expert across each of those? In part because it probably suits the vendor community to say oh, I can sell it multiple times. But actually it doesn't make any conceptual sense because the, the problem people are trying to solve is the same problem whether you're at the biggest bank in the world or the smallest bank in the world. We're all trying to say is there anything in that transaction which looks a bit like these publicly available lists? And the problem's no different um, whether you're you know, bank A, bank B, bank Z. And, and therefore, for us, it's all about saying, do it once, do it once to high standards, and then worry about something else. You're, you're articulating a fundamentally different vision of selling uh, to this industry, or servicing, sorry, the, uh, yes. this industry. Um, one thing that's run to mind, and this is a selfish question because obviously I run a, uh, hmm. I run Barker White, but how does that uh, influence how you build your organisational structure and how you furnish those clients? We're, we're not... Um, the, the thing that marks GSS people apart is that we are passionate about fixing this as an, at an industry level. And uh, I, I sometimes use this sort of slightly clunky uh, expression or, or, or description to say, you, you imagine if sanctions screening didn't exist today and 
tomorrow suddenly um, different governments came together and said, look, actually, we need to make sure that people don't have access to the world's financial systems and therefore let's um, designate some individuals, some people, some countries, some, let's do some designations. Uh, I tell you what we would not do. We would not just publish those names and say to the banking industry, the financial services, figure it out, go and work it out. Because it's so inefficient and it's so inconsistent. You would actually say, here are the standards, we're going to provide this as a clearinghouse service and therefore any transaction has to pass through this before it can be completed. And it's, it's creating that central service because that's the purpose of sanctions screening. It's to make sure the sanctions actually stop the bad actors getting access to the system. And the way you do that is you create common controls available to all. Uh, and if you have any gaps, the bad actors find the gaps. And therefore, it's a little bit, you know, water always finds a way. The bad actors always find a way. So completeness and consistency of completeness is so important. And what I love about GSS is we're just trying to help sanctions work without the unintended consequences of false positives and also all the banks on the street fighting over, oh, I need a list expert, I need an alert gen expert, I need someone who can tell me what supervised learning actually means. And you know, Why? Why is everyone trying to be individually expert when you've got a common problem and actually a common application of the solution is in everyone's interests? Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's many areas I mean, you can argue there's a bit fraud's a good example, and you can argue potentially some of the ESG, especially ESG reporting. But there, there is this, the area of regulation and compliance, there are certain topics that just make sense to be solved at an industry level. Yes. So if you were to, um, if you were to, if you were to look at the industry and the impact that GSS is mm. hoping to have then on, on, on the industry, we're expecting it to be extremely disruptive. Because, or, or actually, this is more of a question. If if uh, GSS is working with a bank to um, provide these services, will a large bank expect to also at the same time work with a, another vendor no. as a backup? Is no. that's gone? Gone. And so no the industry need. has gone. In fact, yeah, there's no need for that, right? So, it, the you know, our goal is to help people worry about things they should be worrying about and not spend time uh, unnecessarily doing something which is of limited value. Uh, I was struck by, uh, we were actually in Washington DC earlier this year with OFAC, and they, they, they have a nice way of explaining it where they say people spend too much time worrying about screening and not enough time worrying about circumvention. And the money, uh, you know, especially if you think about the recent, not just the Crimean sanctions, but the Russian sanctions, of course, more recently, um, their focus is to say, are they having the desired effect? And, you know, depending on, on what analysis you look at, they're not. The funds are still, uh, you know, coming out of and going into, into Russia and eventually to the designated party. So, so why is that? Well, it's not because the screening's incomplete. So regulators want more time spent on understanding circumvention, how that works, the parties involved, the shell companies, the, the layering of transactions, all that, that. That's what they want to focus on. And they want to say, but as a preventative control, let's have something we can rely on. You can do it for less money and not worry about it. 
and that's where we come in. So therefore, I genuinely think we are here to help um, you know, sanctions as an expression of foreign policy um, uh, controls to, to work more effectively. And um, I'll give you, if I may, Tom, one little sort of personal uh, sort of angle to this story. As much as I loved all the work I did um, as a consultant, and I, I've definitely tested over a hundred different banks, um, financial crime controls, particularly sanctions. Uh, it's so duplicative. Everyone is doing the same thing. And as much as it's <laughs> nice to sort of have um, the ability to go and help different banks, you kind of think, isn't this nuts? Why aren't we doing this centrally? Why aren't we doing it once? And it's always been in your mind that wouldn't it be just simply better? Especially when you go to a bank and the first question they say is, what's everyone else doing? Um, so now they know. Yes. Because everyone else is doing, you know, the, the goal is GSS is the expression of the industry standards and the industry standards are available to everyone to mean that you don't have to worry about making your own flavor of something where actually the flavor you want is the same flavor as the next bank in yes. the chain. So. It, it just, it's got that sense of excitement. Yes, it's disruptive and the casualties are going to be potentially um, some of the incumbents, uh, but it's the right thing. Yeah. So you're, you're, dis you're going to be disrupting this area of compliance. And you, you mentioned that there are some other areas that perhaps mm. um, would benefit from a, a similar approach. What's the plan with GSS? Is um, Are we just focusing in on this one thing? And once we built it, we're, we're, we're kind of happy, we just can't carry on improving it? Or are there other areas you expect to expand into? GSS's mission is to, to look at applications where you can agree standards. Um, you don't differentiate competitively institution by institution on how you discharge your obligations here and a common platform uh, to access those standards is both practical and um, sensible so if you take those as the drivers the first obvious application was transaction screening when it comes to looking for sanctions risk now there are many areas that are adjacent to that. Uh, the one we are asked to look at a lot by our banks is fraud. Not all aspects of fraud, but you know, fraud is interesting because the commonalities. If, if one institution is benefiting from um, the way in which fraud can be resolved um, in that particular institution, wh why would other ones not be able to benefit from it too? So there's a principle about fraud. There are definitely other areas too. I think right now with the 40 billion transactions that are currently screened, uh, if, we, if we even get 10% of that market, we'll be super busy on that uh, for, for the foreseeable uh, few years. There are adjacencies in sanctions where we're, we've been asked to, to go to next. So screening of securities is a big issue and an increasingly big issue given um, uh, events in Russia and Ukraine as transfer of value of our securities is now a concern. We've also got adjacencies around um, other forms of uh, sanctions screening uh, with uh, name screening, you know, the, ob the, obvious, the obvious place to go. 
uh, which is of course part of security screening given beneficial owners and, and ultimate beneficial owners and so on. So there's a lot, there's lots, if I look at my sort of diagram of where we are and where we're going to go, I think we need to be focused on the current because there's lots more to do. But actually the adjacencies and sanctions and then the adjacencies and areas which follow those three principles that I mentioned a moment ago, that, that becomes the obvious roadmap. So that's why GSS, none, neither of the S's stand for sanctions. It's screening, you know, we want to yeah. provide screening as a service where people can screen whatever they need to screen for whatever purpose that might be. The long-term future of GSS, is that, is it always going to be a standalone company? Do you think it makes sense to be part of a larger organisation or, or, or uh, type of organisation in the future? Well, we like to be standalone and we like to be for profit. So the for-profit motive is useful because um, it means that we are continually looking to make sure that um, the services that we provide meet client demand. So I, we're, we're unashamedly um, uh, for profit because we think it drives the same, the, the right motivations for us, which is around speed and agility and responding to, to the market. I think if we were, um, if, if we were funded without that driver, I think we'd, we'd have different behaviours. Um, and we, 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 we've got to make sure we're incredibly attuned to client demand, market demand. Um, in terms of the future, I, we, we're pretty busy for the next few years uh, with this journey that we're on. Um, who, um, who owns us will affect how people think of us. So um, financial market infrastructure is great. Um, banks are great. Uh, as long as there's enough of them. Uh, and, and that's kind of where we are today. So we feel good about the ownership structure. Uh, I wouldn't want to be seen as um, two hand in glove with a particular provider. So if, for example, we were bought by someone who had a particular product they were looking to sell uh, and we were part of that story, it goes away from what we've always wanted yes. to do, which is we want to be, you know, we've got a loosely coupled architecture where the components are the ones that we believe are best for now. They may change in the future. We may do more of our own build in the future. But um, we, we've got that agility in terms of the way we've architected ourselves. And that's important. Uh, and we don't want to have decisions made for us about what the platform can Yes. To, can to contain. a public listing? Um, it, it feels miles away um, because right now we're worried about what we're doing next yeah. week, <laughs> next month. <laughs> um, but our, our, our market is, is really clear. If we're focused on the people who have an obligation to do sanction screening and we can say we can do it better for you and we can do it in a way that the regulators will be comfortable with, I think we, we will we'll be set fair. Yeah. But those, are for, those, are, those considerations are for a different day. That makes sense. So look, I, I'm very conscious um, that we've only got so much time together and you're a busy man. Um, one of the things I, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit more about is, is the, the, the process of being a, do you call it, consider yourself a founder CEO? Because I, I don't want to put those words in your mouth, but it, fundamentally I, I would say you are. But yes, I, yeah. that's certainly, uh, that's certainly I'm, I'm, you know, I, was one of, I want one of the founders. Yeah. And uh, 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 yeah, so we use the language founder CEO here. Yes, absolutely. Co-founder CEO. Co-founder CEO, um, but but I, the first time you've been the a, a co-founder CEO, mm. so you were a first-time founder. 
Mm. But with a, a long uh, and successful career um, beforehand. And I'm just wondering, are there, and depending on when we take the start date, we're either three or two or one year sort of into it, kind of, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. um, but, but are there any, anything, did anything surprise you? So even though you've got this long track record in business, um, once you started this thing, has, there, has anything kind of cropped up where you thought, ah, I might have thought I might have, that, that couldn't be my surprise, I guess. Um, there was a, I don't know if you've read uh, Ben Horowitz's book, um, The Hard Things About Hard Things. Um, it, it's, a, it's, it's a brilliant book. It was published many years ago now, actually, but it was a brilliant book. And there was a phrase that he uses in there which really made me smile. And it was along the lines of, um, the best thing about being a tech CEO is that you have a mixture of euphoria and terror. And the great thing is that both of those emotions are amplified through a lack of sleep. <laughs> and, you know, there's a lot of recognition in there because you do go through euphoric moments and there are moments of kind of complete sort of um, uh, panic because there's too yeah. much to do. Um, so it's absorbing. It is 24 hours. Of course it is because you, you think of all the people who are willing you on and supporting you and the people who don't want you to succeed as well. But it, it's, it's, it, it's, it's complete, it's, all, it's, cons it's consuming, and that's good and bad. And the good things are, um, you know, when we've, we're fortunate enough, enough to have the success we're having, uh, it does feel great, um, but it still creates ex you know, expectations that you want to manage. And so I think it's the, it's the, the, the fact that it is, it, it's 100%. And yes. I always used to think, oh, I worked really hard when I was the sort of partner at Deloitte and doing this and that. Yeah, I did, <laughs> but it was episodic. Yeah. Whereas now it's it it's it there's no lulls. It's yeah. it's all the time. Do you, um, is there any if you were chatting to someone, a personal acquaintance came up to you said thinking about starting something, um, you know, as someone who's recently been through this, what advice have you got for me? What would you advise? Oh, know me? your market. Uh, absolutely, know your market. Um, uh, focus on your addressable market. Understanding your your, the size of your market, the status of your market, um, your competition, anticipating the competition, how people are going to react to you. Be obsessed with, with knowing that market and always assume that there's a heck of a lot going on you don't know. So uh, never be complacent about, about analysing the marketplace. Uh, I, I think that is so, so important. The other thing is um, recognise that you'll have ups and downs. Um, but if you consistently work hard and you keep challenging yourself to say, am I doing the right things? I mean, I'll be able to course correct. But if you work hard and you're obsessed with the people you're looking to serve, because it's all about the market, then, then I think, um, I think you know, you'll get there. I'm assuming you've got a great idea, of course. Yes. But assuming you've got a great idea, you know, get just upset, be obsessed with that, be obsessed with that, and I think that 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 to me um, is it always unlocks everything. If you work hard, obsessed with the market, always thinking about the clients, um, you you'll uh, you'll get there. Very good. Is there a, uh, when you're building this business and you're getting the, the the people on board, you're building the team? Is there one area or 
even individual role that you found most challenging? Um, good question. I think, look, I, when I've worked in software before, I came with a built product. So I was, in my early days of my career, uh, the software was there. And therefore, yes, there were some additional features that were being developed and they'd get it released on various cycles and so on. But to develop something from scratch, you know, your future is in other people's hands. Yeah. So that dev work and making sure you've got engineers and architects and testers that you can trust and can kind of help you learn that journey. I mean, we're all speaking the language of agile these days and, you know, um, the, the, the way in which we're, we're focused on understanding product ownership versus product management and how the scrums come together and what does it mean to actually have story points and burn down charts and all the rest of it. I mean, that's new to me. I was aware of it, but that's new. Yeah. So the real positive now is that, you know, if you've got those people those key lieutenants in those roles, gosh, it makes a big difference. Yeah. So I, I would say that as a technology company, make sure you've really got um, uh, people there who are strong, you can trust, you can rely upon. Um, and that's maybe because I've grown up in a sort of a sales client-facing environment. Yeah. So that I was more comfortable there, yeah, but that yeah. area was really important to me. I reckon it will be different person by person. I think you're so right. if an engineer launches a yeah. business, I bet I bet they regard it as some sort of like black magic over there about how clients are managed. Yeah. Um, whereas, of course, uh, so it's horses or courses. I think you're 100% right about that. Um, so I always finish with one final question, if I may. Okay, this Columbo moment. This is it. So if you could go back in time and give one piece of advice to an 18-year-old Tom Scampion, hmm. what would it be? Um, so I'll give you a, uh, I'll try and give you a constructive answer to that. So, uh, I think, uh, you know, hard work um, is, is the uh, engine room for so many things. So uh, m make sure you work hard, uh, but the next thing is, I would say, um, say yes to opportunities. Um, be uncomfortable. If somebody offers you something which you're not directly familiar with and you think could be a bit of a stretch, just say yes. Because especially when you're young, the aggregation of all of these experiences are what comes together to make you. You know, I worked in telesales when I left university and I'd gone to a prestigious university um, and I was the president of my college and all that sort of stuff. And then I went into telesales. Uh, and I have to say, um, it was great because I, you know, you learn stuff. Yeah. And um, I did it because I needed a job, but I learned stuff. And, and I think I still think about some of those experiences yeah. all, all the way back then. And that was 30 years ago. So I think that say yes, take opportunities. You know, but work hard. Your fuel is going to be your energy, and if you work hard and you just take on stuff, um, you, you, before you know where you are, you've actually created yeah. lots of different experiences that you can draw from. 
Very good. Tom, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you, Tom. Thank you.